The reading of the Scriptures from Psalm 2, I invite your reverent and uh, hearing and faith of the reading of God's Word here in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is, I think, fairly common to uh, go to worship services on Sunday and hear messages about uh, God's uh, love, uh, His compassion, uh, worthy subjects to be sure. There is, I think, also uh, a universalism that seemingly prevails today. God loves everyone and everyone will go to heaven except for maybe... I don't know, Adolf Hitler and a few of his colleagues. Uh, But this morning, our our psalm breaches a very common subject in the Scriptures, uh, and that is uh, the judgment of God. Uh, It's about rebellion against God and His Son, and, and even worse, the high price that is paid for rebellion. Perhaps not a common message uh, that's heard in churches, but it should be. Uh, because it uh, composes the essence of the gospel. Uh, The psalmist teaches us that in the midst of a revolt, God responds with contempt and uh, rehearses his appointment and decree with his son and exhorts the rebels to be wise and to submit to his son or to face destruction and judgment. I personally uh, see Psalm 2 as a mixture of a wisdom psalm and a royal psalm. I think it's a royal psalm because it deals with enthronement and the coronation of God's anointed one. It's also a wisdom psalm because it is unwise to rebel against God. And it is wise to uh, humble oneself and to submit to the rule of God. Uh, the New Testament acknowledge uh, David as the author, Acts chapter 4, verse 25. Uh, there's no superscription in uh, the, uh, the psalm, uh, but uh, again, the New Testament sees David as the author. Uh, historical setting is a political crisis at the beginning of his uh, reign. 
Typically, if you're going to attack someone, it's uh, when there's a transition, someone new has come to power. Transition times are uh, oftentimes times of vulnerability. Uh, so perhaps uh, the Gentile rulers surrounding Israel sees the nation as being vulnerable. A new king, uh, new, new sheriff on the block, so to speak. Uh, but nonetheless, it occurs at the beginning of his reign. Uh, as such, it's also an echo, of course, of the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and an affirmation that David's rule is perpetual. Uh, it's also indirectly, I think indirectly messianic, uh, because while the chief subject is David, uh, typologically it uh, refers ultimately to Christ, who is uh, God's appointed son and uh, messianic ruler, uh, so that the greater and more Intense fulfillment is in Christ the Messiah, but the immediate fulfillment is in uh, David. Uh, so we begin in verses 1 to 3 with a threat uh, to, uh, to God's rule. Uh, that threat is announced. Uh, text begins with a uh, rhetorical question. Rhetorical because of the folly of rebellion. Uh, rebellion and lawlessness is quite uh, prominent in our culture. Uh, but it's a folly because God will seek account and bring everything under judgment. And that ultimately the rebellion that's expressed in lawlessness uh, is, uh, is a rejection of uh, the rule of God. The nations are described as in a rage uh, and imagining a rebellion against God, so they're excited about it talking about it, sending uh, cables to one another, sending their emissaries to plot uh, the overthrow of David. Uh, but it's all in vain. Uh, the word vain is uh, uh, characteristic of any rebellion against God. Vain because it's empty. Uh, and because it's empty, it's futile. Uh, and it's futile because it will come to nothing because God cannot be unseated. Uh, their plan is to take stand and to conspire against the Lord and His anointed one. That's David. David has been anointed as king. The word in the Hebrew text is literally Messiah. It's what Messiah means, the anointed one. So it's to conspire against God's vice-regent in David and ultimately His vice-regent in King Messiah, who is our Savior Christ. Peter quotes uh, David in Acts chapter 4, verses 25, uh, reflecting typological fulfillment in the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, you rebelled against my Messiah, against my appointed one. Uh, it was futile. Why was it futile? Because Christ conquered the grave. He rose again. That's why it's futile. It's a reminder that all rebellion in light of the resurrection of Christ is utterly futile because He is the shepherd. He controls death. Uh, terrifying description of me, of our Savior, in the book of the Revelation, that uh, He carries the key of death and hell. Uh, that is a power to reckon with if someone plots rebellion. Uh, it is, uh, it's also uh, a very ironic rebellion, as you know from 
uh, Acts chapter 4, uh, in verse 25, in which uh, God describes the rebels as fulfilling his will. Acts chapter 4, verse 25. Who by the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of the father David, thy servant, and say, Why did the nations raise and the rage and the peoples uh, devise a vain thing? Now look at verse 28. To do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. In other words, the rebels were going to fulfill the will of God. They're going to be held accountable for it, but they're fulfilling what God has predestined from eternity past. Uh, and it places them in extreme jeopardy because of the sovereignty of God in light of the resurrection of the one that they crucified. Uh, returning to Psalm 2, the content of the conspiracy is, uh, uh, is in verse 3. Uh, Let us uh, tear off God's chains and cast off His cords. It's a figure of uh, speech referencing God's divine authority. Uh, that God has divine authority over all civil government. Wherever it sits, whenever it comes to power, He is the ultimate authority. He gives temporary authority to civil rulers and governors. And he reminds them that they are to rule expressing his ethic. It's the problem with most civil governors today. They have power. Minus absent the divine ethic. They write multitudes of laws, but they make no reference to the divine ethic to do righteousness and to serve humbly before God. Uh, they have a way of saying, I choose the laws, and they are the laws that I want, irrespective of divine authority and the divine ethic. Uh, that's a long-winded of saying um, that I'm a rebel against God. I don't reckon His ultimate authority over my life, and I care less of His ethic. Uh, and that is uh, dangerous ground to tread upon because uh, the psalmist is going to warn us to seek the safety of heaven, for rebels will pay an incredibly high price in the timing of God. Uh, verses 4 to 9, God responds in contempt and affirmation of his vice regent. It's very interesting that the psalm, uh, as it shifts in its message, has God speaking. Uh, but notice, notice that it deals first with the person of God. He who sits in the heavens. It is heaven that rules. Everywhere when you study the scriptures, it's heaven that rules earthly rulers. We've been studying in our Sunday school hour uh, the rule of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He's very proud and vain. Heaven speaks and cuts him down, turns him out to pasture. Why is that? Because it's the voice of heaven that rules the voices of civil rulers. He is enthroned in the heavens. 
testifying to his supremacy and his sovereignty and that he is impervious to the thoughts and the designs and actions of earthly threats. He is so impervious that he is characterized here, figuratively speaking, as laughing and mocking them. We don't think of God that way, do we? God mocking? Oh, God would never do that. Yes, God mocks rebels. He laughs at them. If you will, it's an ironic taunt. Because the cruel joke will turn upon them. It's an expression of this in your Old Testament if you turn to Proverbs chapter 1. You know this is a book of wisdom. Uh, it is also a book that uh, speaks of uh, judgment. In fact, we have just that judgment in the first chapter. Uh, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24, because I called and you refused. Speaking to young people, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. Like our civil governors today, we, we don't want to hear what God says. Don't, don't bring uh, any notion of accountability to God before me. That's not going to mix civil government with divine government, even though God does. So God calls and they refused. Verse 25, And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. Notice the mocking. God mocks them. I'll even laugh at your calamity. I'll mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and calamity like a whirlwind. Then God says, you will call on me. Verse 28, I won't answer. You will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. God opens a window for people to respond. When they refuse Him, He closes the window. And yet, when physical calamity comes, everyone calls upon God. Even the pagan, even the atheist calls upon God. Then it's too late. They will seek God, but He cannot be found. Their judgment is inescapable. It's also just a a profound expression, Proverbs, uh, verses, chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. For the waywardness of thy naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools shall destroy them. It's a young man. Young man who's strong and mighty and uh, perhaps very intelligent. He doesn't need God. He doesn't need anything except himself and his wits and his own wisdom. It will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and shall be at ease from the dread of evil. It's profound wisdom for the young man to give attention to the word of the Lord. Remember a number of years ago, uh, when uh, all the scientists were warning about the eruption of Mount St. Helens, news people were uh, talking to people on the ground, and a number of them who lived just under the mountain said, we're not worried about this. We're going to make it. We always make it. I mean, these 
eruptions, volcanoes come and go. When Mount St. Helens blew, their bodies were never recovered. Probably vaporized in the incredible power of the power of God. A reminder that nature warns us of divine judgment. Everyone says, well, the judgment will give. In fact, I don't believe in that myth, judgment. God's not a judge. I mean, he's a judge in the Old Testament. If he's in the New Testament, he's a God of love and compassion. I'm not going to judge anybody in the New Testament. Jesus is love. Very prominent message, by the way, in churches today. It's certainly true, but it doesn't obviate God's judgment and his justice. So it happens in... Uh, the second coming of Christ, Revelation chapter 6, verse 17. Uh, the day of the Lord comes and the, uh, uh, the rulers and uh, the wise men of the earth and the judges flee. They flee to the mountains. They call upon the big rocks to hide them because of the wrath of the Lamb. And John says, for the great day of their wrath has come. Then he asks a rhetorical question. Who is able to stand against that wrath? Rhetorical question is answered, absolutely no one, no one can stand against the wrath of God when it comes. And they will seek God. They cannot find Him. And the rocks cannot protect them. Great gospel hymn, The Rock of Ages. The hymnist was on a hike in the Lake District of England. Uh, a whirlwind swept upon uh, the land, uh, mighty winds, and he, he hides in a rock ponders uh, through the concept of nature, the power of the judgment of God, writes this hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. God uh, speaks to the civil rulers of His plan and terrifies them in His fury, Psalmist says. His plan is what I've installed my king. The announcement to the Gentile kings at David's coronation enthronement is that God's ruler... And his plan to rule through David is irrevocable. And the plan is his decree from eternity past. Uh, this word is from the verb to etch something in stone, meaning it's fixed and it's immutable. Decrees of God are immutable. God's eternal purposes, which he decreed from eternity past to do all things for his glory. And he decreed it in eternity past to set David upon his throne. And that nothing, nothing could ever change that. He also acknowledges that David is his son, begotten of God. In the ancient Near East, kings were the sons of God. Widely held uh, uh, in the great monarchs, monarchies and the kings and queens of of, of Europe, that they were the divine agent. Problem is, most of them forgot the divine ethic. They ruled for their own glory and wealth and power. The text is a coronation formula of the unique relationship between God and His King and His elevated status as the Son of God. The King David is my son. I'm His father. In other words, I'm his protector. By the way, if you're a Christian, you know God the Father through Jesus Christ, you too are a son of God, and he becomes 
your protector. Uh, this text is alluded to by Matthew as being fulfilled in Christ in a number of occasions in the New Testament. First at his baptism, you are my son. You are my son. At his transfiguration, you are my son, hear him. I am well pleased in him. Matthew 3, Matthew 17. Uh, the concept of Christ as the divine Son is also used the author of the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. Thou art my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, the text is uh, has as its context the incredible majesty of Christ as the Son of God. Notice Notice verse 3. He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. That is someone to reckon with if you're going to rebel against Him. Because He upholds all things by His majestic power. Text is a reminder to some in the church who are beginning to pull away from Him of the majesty and supremacy of God the Son. Superiority of Christ among all things because of who He is, what He did. Sat down at the right hand of God the Father to rule and that everything is bequeathed to Him. That's someone to reckon with. The text in Hebrews is the beginning of a number of warning passages. Warning uh, not to rebel against God because war, uh, because rebellion will be called to account and cannot win. And it's a dangerous place to be when God comes to bring accounting of our response to His vice-regent. In this case, God the Son. It's also used of the superiority of Christ as, as uh, superior to all of the high priests of Israel. Hebrews 5.5 Thou art my son, today I have begotten. It's a priest forever. The high priest came and went. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the high priests of, of Israel. He is now the last high priest. No one will supplant him. No one will come after him because of his perfections. He effected purification and sat down at the right end of God the Father because he effected the purification of his, of his people. No high priest of Israel could ever do that. Only temporary what they did. Christ does eternal. He doesn't do temporary because of who he is, the eternal God. So David represented God on the earth. Christ is God on the earth. And the greater fulfillment of the psalm means that His rule will not be supplanted and will eventually overtake all the kingdoms of this world and impose His kingdom. In other words, the New Testament authors, whether they be in the Gospels, Book of Hebrews, are Christological. The New Testament authors uh, 
saw the immediate reference to David, but the ultimate reference was to Christ, the great last King Messiah. And with this focus, God says to His Son, He will give Him the nations as His inheritance and the ends of the earth as His possession. Verse 8. So His rule is not only perpetual, it's also universal. Remind you that uh, in the Reformed Church throughout the centuries, that text has driven the greatest missionary journeys in the history of the world. Because they knew Christ was going to win. And they knew they could take that gospel to the world in light of who He was. And if they were rejected, Christ was still King. And He would eventually perpetually extend His rule over all the nations. And the rule is extended either by the imposition of judgment or submission. Let's look at the judgment first. Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, shatter them like earthenware. The verbs here are in the future tense. Some point in the future, he will come with a rod of iron. And every ruler will be like pottery. He will smash. The greatest of the China of the world will be broken by his power. Uh, it's picked up by uh, John in the last book of the Bible. Book of the Revelation chapter 12. Verse, verse 5, And she gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all the nation with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God and to His throne. It's a reference to Christ and the resurrection. But ultimately, uh, the psalm has its fulfillment in Christ and future rule. Affirmation of who He is. King Messiah. Who possesses in His time, in His will, and in His way. Perpetual, universal rule. And so, rebels be advised. It's dangerous ground to walk on. And so there is, uh, from an appeal to judgment, uh, to a merciful appeal, as the window remains open to submission. Verses 10-12, to 12, God extends an exhortation to wisdom by submission to His Son. Uh, the certainty of judgment in light of who Christ is becomes a basis of an appeal to wisdom. Be wise how you deal with this one appointed by God who will rule forever. The identity of the Son and His claim to the throne makes the appeal compelling. The appeal immediately is to judges and uh, kings, but it's all-inclusive because of their earthly and temporary authority. I mean, we could say, senators, be wise. House members, be wise. Presidents, be wise. Reckon who you are dealing with. Appointed by God for a season, but not irrespective of His ethic to rule righteously and justly 
Be wise if you will and take the warning. Both of these verbs here are commands. They're in the imperative. Uh, the first is a word from the wisdom word group. Be wise has its particular emphasis on making the right choice. What is the right choice? Submit to the Son in light of who He is. Second is the sense of take the advice of heaven because eternal judgment is irreversible and unchangeable. Irreversible once it comes. It's a warning to seek the safety of heaven for rebels will pay a high price. I would remind you of uh, uh, some of the deceptions that are very prominent in churches today. Uh, there is no purgatory. There is no second chance when it comes. There is no self-atonement that you can make or the people on the earth can make for you to get you out of purgatory. It's a cheap deception because it does not exist. It's a fabrication of men, in particular popes and bishops. Just important to recognize uh, very common evangelical deception. And that is that God is love. He will judge no one. But love does not obviate judgment. And neither does it obviate God's justice. Both attributes apply to him. He will exercise them accordingly by his will and when he moves to work by his command. And here's the wisdom to take the advice, serve the Lord. Uh, this word serve is used oftentimes in the Old Testament of service in the tabernacle or the temple. And therefore, in the New American Standard, it's uh, translated worship. Worship the Son. But notice, worship Him with fear and reverence. Fear and reverence. Where is the fear of the Lord today? I'm, I'm like, I always smile when I see that t-shirt. No fear. Really? Really? We have forgotten who God is. And that, to be sure, is dangerous ground. Secondly, rejoice with trembling. Prepositional phrases here means that there's a right way to worship the true God. The parallel lines of the next verse are illustrative of this. Kiss the Son, lest He become angry. It's a submission to His royalty. The word Son here in the Hebrew Bibles and the Aramaic, meaning that uh, Gentile language, so He's speaking to Gentile kings. Here is the eternal King. Kiss, kiss the Son, lest He be angry. And the reason is to placate his anger and to obviate their judgment. Uh, the positive to judgment, there's, the window is still open. Thank God. Still open. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. One of my favorite commentators, Kidner, has written, there's no refuge from him, only in him. Therefore, choose wisely. Heed the warning. 
It's a great reminder of this in the book of a wise man, Ecclesiastes. He tries everything to make him happy and give him meaning and purpose and everything comes up empty. Life to him is seemingly futile and empty, no purpose, except for one thing, that there is a God and there is his ethic. And notice how he concludes his book of wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The conclusion then, when all has been heard is, fear God. And keep His commandments because this applies to every person. Because God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. Therefore, fear Him and submit to His Son. It's incredible advice to someone pondering rebellion and the folly that there will never be a judgment, never be an account. By the way, this applies, of course, to Christians. You and I go through the judgment as well. We just come out the better end because of Christ our protector. It's a reason to find safety in Him because there's no safety outside of Him. And the wisdom, of course, is to receive Christ as Savior because if you don't, you will see Him as judge. There's no middle ground. None whatsoever. We have a picture of this in the sacrament of the Lord's table. And that incredible judgment fell upon our Savior and Redeemer. Violent judgment. If you read the accounts in the Gospels of the crucifixion, reflecting that He was taking upon Himself what we deserved in eternity and satisfying the judgment against us. Oftentimes, uh, background, we see the background of the sacrament and uh, the Passover lamb. Lamb was slain, shed its blood. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Christ is our Passover. He was slain for us and shed his blood that the angel of death would pass over us, that the eternal judgment would uh, give us wide birth because of His blood. Uh, the sacrament of the Lord's table, oftentimes spoken of in the Reformed Church, is a gospel to the senses. We can see it and we can taste it. Uh, it's also, I think, very important to uh, understand that um, there's a right way uh, to partake of the sacrament because of who Christ is. Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is required for the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? Answer, it's required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon Him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience lest they come unworthily and they eat and drink judgment to themselves. Some in the Corinthian church were partaking of the Lord's table improperly, and temporal judgment overtakes them. So if you're a professing Christian, 
and uh, you have come to the church this morning and you are living in some known sin for which you refuse to repent, you, you really should not partake until you repent. So you have to come properly, uh, repentantly, and in faith. Uh, this is uh, captured for us, uh, I think, in uh, the words of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. It's not the cup of blessing which we bless, a sharing. The word is koinonia, a sharing a fellowship in the blood of Christ. It's not the bread which we break, a sharing of the body of Christ. And since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, and we all partake of the one bread. Earlier, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, 5 to remove uh, the leaven of wickedness. In other words, confess your sins. Be repentant. Come worthily. Not worthily that you deserve anything, but you come worthily because you are His Son. And you come to fellowship and the great blessings of His covenant that He ratifies for you, that gives you eternal life and all of the joys of this life as His protector. So this service is open to all who confess Christ and have been baptized, not under church discipline, who come repentantly. If you're a guest this morning and you are a Christian, you are uh, invited to partake because this is the Lord's table, not the table of Grace Bible Church. Uh, as we uh, prepare to receive and partake the bread, I remind you that the, the body of Christ uh, again was tormented with eternal punishment. <clears throat> And so we break the bread as a reminder of what he did for us. Uh, we also remember his words in the Gospel of John, that he who by faith eats uh, my body and drinks my blood will live forever. Because I'm eternal bread that has come down out of heaven. We are partaking of a physical representation of that. The greater fulfillment is to reflect upon Him, what He gives to His people, what He does for them uh, upon the cross. As the bread is being passed, I ask that you hold the element, for which time uh, we have all uh, been served and then we will eat together, reflecting that we are one body, one church, and that we have one Lord and one Savior. And He is that Lord and that Savior. Um, while the elements are being passed, I encourage you to engage the Lord in silent prayer, acknowledging that uh, we hold to the spiritual presence of the Lord in the sacraments by faith. Uh, we receive Him by faith. We eat Him by faith uh, because nothing is uh, carnal or physical. More importantly, praise Him. Worship Him. Remember Him. Reflect upon Him. That His bread... Uh, his supply to you of the blessings of His covenant will never run out. You will never go to His cupboard and find it empty. Always be full. And so take occasion to worship Him. Let's now take occasion to prepare our hearts.
to receive the sacrament of uh, the Lord's table and the bread. Our Lord, we give Thee thanks for the Lord of glory who came down out of heaven to purchase and to redeem us. To give us His forgiveness and grace and to keep us spiritually forever safe. Bless us, Lord, in our fellowship with Him. And make us full that we might go away strengthened all the more to live for Thee and the greatness of Thy glorious kingdom. In His name we pray. Amen. As I uh, pass the uh, service of the cup, I remind you that uh, in the center of the cup there is wine, in the periphery, uh, center of the service there is wine, in the periphery there is grape juice, that each may partake in the freedom of their own particular traditions, but more importantly that we reflect upon the reality that Christ drank the cup of judgment, that we might never have to drink it. Uh, and that He is our spiritual safety, and our every hope. Uh, as we did with the bread, I ask that you would hold the cup until which time we are all served, and then we will uh, partake together, manifesting our oneness uh, as God's people, uh, entirely dependent upon the benefits of the eternal covenant of redemption. Our Father, we thank Thee for the cup, not of judgment, but the cup of the new covenant, and all of the blessings that accrue to us because of the majesty of our Savior. And we come because we are the sons of God, and we receive the bounties of thy goodness, thy majesty. And we're profoundly grateful and thankful for what it means to be forever forgiven and to have a place in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Come quickly, for we delight in thy presence. And even in this time, Lord, of the fellowship that we have uh, with our Savior, who is Christ. His name we pray. Amen.